uh, four scripture readings. Uh, Nate will read for us from Luke chapter 9. Sharon will read for us from Deuteronomy 8. Abby will read Psalm 23. And then Kim will come and read for us from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And what I want you to hear in all these texts as we read them is just hear how God so generously and abundantly provides for us. All these texts have beautiful messages about God's provision for us. And so I just especially encourage you to to listen for that as you read. Let me pray again just briefly now that the Lord would open our eyes to see his word rightly and, uh, and help me as well as I preach his word. God, we know that apart from the work of your Spirit, we are all blind to understand your truth and to see the beauty of your Word. And so, Lord, would you um, just open the eyes of our hearts now, Lord, that we might not only see the facts that are presented in your Word, but that we might see the beauty and the wonder that's presented in your Word, and that we might have hearts of faith towards you. Would you also help me, God, to be a faithful teacher of your Word as I proclaim your Word? Um, God, I need the help of your Spirit. Uh, I need you to help me to uh, prevent me from any error and to to teach your truth faithfully, both with my heart and with my mind. And so, God, help me as well, so that all of us, Lord, might grow in our faith to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging, to get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fishes, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Deuteronomy 8, 2, 3, and 4. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, 
testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 11. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Well, as we look at the text in Luke chapter 9 this morning, uh, I want to begin just by pointing out something that you may have experienced yourself as you have gone about the Christian life, or if you're new to the Christian life or unfamiliar to the Christian life, uh, may be unfamiliar to you. And that is that the Christian life, far from making life easier, tends to make life more difficult. The gospel does bring enormous release to us. It brings us freedom in Christ Jesus. The scripture says it pours love into our souls. But at the same time, when we receive the gospel and trust in him in that way, enormous demands are also placed upon us. To give just one example, Colossians 3 verse 13 says, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That is remarkable, is it not, that God commands us to forgive the way that he himself has forgiven? Again, it's commands like that that would make you think that on one level, wouldn't it be nice to simply not be a Christian? (laughs) To not have to forgive others in this way because that is such a high calling because God loved us when we were his enemies and he forgave us when we were his enemies. And so God also calls us to forgive others. And on the other hand, of course, if we weren't Christians, though, we would not know this amazing forgiveness that Christ offers us. 
That we can be welcomed into the very presence of God by his mercy alone and not by our own efforts. And so we would lose something, I believe, ultimately much greater than what is demanded of us. And so it's a very difficult calling that we have in the Christian life to forgive others in this way. And again, I could go across the New Testament and there's a hundred different examples of ways that a heavy and a weighty calling has been put on us as believers. And yet at the same time, we know that when we come to God in Christ, so much mercy and love and grace is poured out on us that it should swamp entirely all the demands that we feel placed upon us. So while it is true that as a Christian, there are great demands on our lives, the life has gotten harder in some sense. It still does not compare to what we've been given. Now, one of the most fascinating passages in the Bible to me that expresses this is Psalm 73. And so this is a Psalm of David. This is where King David is sometimes talking about how he feels about the life of faith. So this is Psalm 73 and starting in verse 3. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they had no pangs unto death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So he says all these kind of good but terrible things about these people who, uh, who have an easy life, who are wealthy, who give no thought of God. But then here in verse 13, he again expresses his envy of them. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. So he's saying that I come to the Lord every day. I come to his word every morning and every morning in his word, I see my faults. <laughs> I see that I have done wrong and that I must repent and I must turn again to God. I see all that God requires of me, how far short I fall. And on the other hand, I look out across humanity at all these people who don't know God and they do wrong and they don't feel bad at all. (laughs) They don't have anyone condemning them. In fact, because of their wealth and because of their popularity, everyone turns to them and applauses them. (laughs) And meanwhile, here I am feeling guilty and ashamed for my wrongdoing. The life of trusting in God can indeed be a difficult life. And compared to the life of ease that you could have apart from knowing God, the Christian life is painful indeed. And yet we know that we have a great and a glorious reward. I think of the image of a runner who is training himself for the Olympics, right? He wants to get the Olympic gold. And in order to train in that way, Of course, he knows that he must put himself through a great deal of pain and suffering. Training is not going to be easy, right? While other people get to sleep in and bed in the morning and they get to eat whatever they want, 
He has to wake up early and get out on the trail to go running. He has to be careful about every calorie that he eats. Or consider a musician that that wants to be a, a great performer. Again, while everybody else may go about their life in a carefree way, the musician knows that they have to count every minute of practice that they can get if they want to get excellent on that instrument. But then consider when they come to finally receive the prize. This person who has given up their life training for the Olympics and they make it and they receive a gold medal. Do you think they will regret all the training that they've put themselves through as the world sees the great things they have done? I don't think they would regret a moment of it. Or consider the musician that after years and years of painful practice and training, is able to express themselves on that instrument far deeper than even words itself could do. Are they going to regret all that practice and training they put in? They will not regret it for a second. They will rejoice that they have attained such a great outcome. And so in the same way, the Christian life is a call to diligence. It's a call to discipline ourselves, but it's a call to diligence and discipline by faith looking to the great reward that we have. We don't discipline ourselves merely for the sake of discipline, merely for the sake of misery or punishment, but we do it to receive a great and a glorious outcome, knowing the very life of God in our souls. And so our faith is a call to striving and to difficulty, but it's also an offer of the greatest gift that mankind could ever know. The promise of fellowship with God himself, nearness to our creator. And both the fact that the Christian life comes with this sort of difficulty and the way in which God strengthens us for this difficulty are displayed for us in this passage this morning. I think this passage before us this morning is meant to show us what we are called to on the one hand, the difficulty of what we are called to, And on the other hand, it is meant to show us how God provides for every difficulty, how he is able to sustain us and bear us up under every burden. Now, on the one hand, this story in Luke 9 of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is a miracle story, just like all the other miracle stories in the Gospel of Luke. So Jesus feeding the 5,000 indeed shows us Jesus is divine. It shows us that he is powerful. It shows us that he is enormously concerned and loving for people, that he would provide for them in this way. And yet what really sets this miracle story apart is how Jesus involves his disciples in the work of the miracle. Again, last week when we looked primarily at verses 1 to 6, we saw that this is kind of a transition point in the gospel where it moves from Jesus undertaking all the work himself to handing off responsibility to his disciples and sending them out, saying that I want you now to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 carries on that very theme that Jesus is not just working alone now, but he is working in and through his disciples. And so we're going to primarily look this morning at verses 10 to 17, where that story of Jesus and the disciples feeding the 5,000 is. So the disciples had just gone out, again in verses 1 to 6, and In verse 10, it says that they had 
come back. It says, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. So they had just returned from going around Israel, preaching and healing and talking about the kingdom of God. And it seems that Jesus maybe wanted to kind of take a retreat with them, you know, to kind of uh, debrief them on all that had happened and prepare them for future work. It says he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. But then in verse 11, we see that these plans for some sort of retreat are ruined. It says that when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had any need of healing. So the crowds hear where the disciples have gone and where Jesus has gone. And so they decide that they're going to follow him out there. And Jesus, in his mercy and in his grace, welcomes them. Even though he and his disciples also, I'm sure, wanted a little break. They wanted some time away. They are tired, no doubt. But they welcome the crowds. And I think this is also evidence to us that the ministry of the disciples must have been fairly successful, right? That, that they get back from talking about the kingdom of God and all of a sudden, as we learn a little later on, 5,000 men, so that doesn't even include women and children, want to come out and hear more about this kingdom of God from Jesus and from the disciples. And so the disciples are tired, Jesus is tired, but the crowds are pressing in. And so even though they've taken this retreat to a desolate place, the crowds are coming after them, seeking more of what Jesus has to say and what the disciples have to say and what they can do. And we see Jesus' response in welcoming the crowds, but we also see the response of the disciples in verse 12. It says, Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. So the disciples obviously see their situation, and it's as if they turn to Jesus and they say, What more can you expect of us, right? We've just been on this journey and we've returned. We've tried to go on this retreat and we can't even go on this retreat. And now the day is almost done. We have not eaten anything. These people have no way, nowhere to sleep. The only option we have is to send these people away so that they can find food and lodging. And their advice seems very reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, in most ministry contexts, like if we were here and I were teaching you all day long and all of us were getting hungry, I don't think I would say, let's stay here and trust that God is just going to divinely provide food. No, I think I probably would say, I think it's time for us to go home so that we can all get something to eat. And so in most ministry contexts, I think that that their advice would be very good. And indeed, in other contexts, I think that Jesus would agree with them. But nevertheless, Jesus clearly wants to take this opportunity to teach his disciples more about Christian ministry. He wants to teach them that when they go about talking to others in Christ's name, when they go about the work of the kingdom, that it cannot be done by natural means. He wants to teach them that it must always be done supernaturally. In the words of 1 Peter 4.11, it says, Whoever serves must serve by the strength that God supplies. And so Jesus gives them a command in verse 13. Verse 13 says that he said to them, You give them something to eat. <laughs> now again, as I began my message with, 
the Christian calling is a very hard and a high calling. And if anyone had reason to doubt their ability to fulfill this calling, or if anyone had reason to get frustrated and throw up their hands and say, I'm not going to try to do this Christian thing anymore, it would have been the disciples in this moment. Jesus telling them, you give them something to eat. Again, as they look out across the plain and they see over 5,000 people all around and then they hear Jesus telling them, you give them something to eat. (laughs) I could not imagine what my reaction would be in that moment. Honestly, I would probably be angry. After, again, traveling all around Israel and coming back and serving all day without any food and being hungry myself and then going to Jesus, trying to communicate to him my trials and my problems, and Jesus simply responds to his disciples, you give them something to eat. If there was ever a command that was impossible to obey, it was that command. The disciples had no way of feeding all those people. Again, as the text clearly says, all they had was five loaves of bread and two fish. (laughs) They could not physically feed 5,000 people. And yet Jesus commands them, you give them something to eat. And in this way, I think this is supposed to be a picture for us of every command in Scripture to the believer. Just like that command I read at the very beginning to forgive one another just as God has forgiven us. You know what? That is impossible. That is crazy to think that we would be able to forgive others the way that God has forgiven us. And yet God commands us to do it in the same way that Jesus commands his disciples, you give them something to eat. And so we should all have this burning question on our minds. How can we do this? I'm sure the disciples had this burning question on their minds. What does he mean, give them something to eat? And as we read our own Bibles and as we feel the Holy Spirit convict us when we go astray and when we do wrong and calling us to do right, and we wonder, God, how on earth am I supposed to do this? We should wonder what God means, how he means for us to do the impossible. And instead of saying, Forget this, I'm out of here. I believe that if we press in to God in his word, then we will see that God indeed supplies the resources. And that is just what we see here in Luke chapter 9. So Jesus commands them, you give them something to eat. And then the disciples reply, as we would expect, that we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we were to go and buy food for all these people. So the disciples are clearly thinking in natural means, right? They're thinking, how can I, in my own strength, just by what I I have, possibly fulfill this command of Jesus? And the only thing that comes to mind is, well, we could go to the market and we could try to buy food for over 5,000 people. That's the only way that they can see to do it. But then Jesus gives them instructions. It says, he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Now the disciples we see in the next verse, obey. It says, and they did so and had them all sit down. And again, I imagine that as the disciples were doing this, they probably still had no clue what Jesus really wanted them to do or how they were supposed to feed these 5,000 people. 
And so what happened is Jesus gave them this command that they knew must fulfill God's greater desires somehow, and yet they couldn't clearly see how. And yet, even though they could not clearly see, they still obeyed. They went around and they had people sit down in these various groups. And then in verse 16, we see what Jesus does next. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And then in verse 17, of course, we learn of the miraculous result. It says, And they all ate and were satisfied. The point that I want you to see is that as the disciples were going about in their obedience to Jesus in this instance, none of them knew ahead of time what the plan was. In fact, none of them probably even knew in the midst of what they were doing what the plan was. It just said that Jesus divided the fish and he broke the bread and he gave it to them. And surely when Jesus did that, they could kind of see that somehow there was more bread now after Jesus had broken it than there was before. And I'm sure they were a little curious of how that was working. And then as they go around and they start to hand out the bread and the fish, again, probably with every time they break off a piece, they're expecting there to be less bread. They're expecting it to go away at some point. And yet the bread never goes away. The fish never goes away. Until in the very end, when everybody has eaten and was satisfied, and then the end of verse 17 says, what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. And the 12 baskets is no meant, no, <laughs> no doubt meant to reflect that there were 12 disciples going about this work. And so what Luke and what Jesus was trying to show through this abundance of leftovers is that for every disciple, there was more than enough that Jesus gave in order for their disciples to fulfill the command of Jesus to feed the people. And the, the disciples fed the people by means of simple obedience. Again, they didn't feed the people by means of knowing the end from the beginning, by having a, a great strategy, knowing how God had gifted them. No, they just always followed the next instructions that Jesus gave them to sit the people down, to separate them into groups, to take this bread, to hand out this bread. And as the disciples went about this obedience, God multiplies the bread and he provides to all abundantly as any had need. And so, beloved, I think the same lesson is here for us. Do, do we want to be obedient to our Savior, Jesus Christ? Do we want to see him work wondrous things through our lives? What is required of us is a willingness to take the next step, to walk in continual obedience to Jesus Christ. To walk in obedience is nothing other than to walk in faith. The disciples, as they separated the people into groups and as they went about giving out the bread and the fish, they only did so because they trusted Jesus Christ. Because they knew that he must have some plan behind what he was directing them to do, even if they could not fully understand it. And so all obedience must be an obedience of faith, of belief in the goodness and in the provision and in the generosity of God. And all throughout the rest of the New Testament, we indeed see 
that God gives abundant provision to his people. The Apostle Paul himself, when he talks about his own serving God, his own working for God, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, he says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul went about his days being spent for the kingdom of God, giving all of his energies, all of his labor to honor God. And yet at the end of the day, he could always look back and he could say that it was not him working, but it was the grace of God at work in him. Or again, in 1 Peter 4, verse 10, we are commanded that as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You see, when we serve in what God provides, rather than serving from our own resources, from our own strength, from our own wisdom, our own skill, our own abilities— then we are able to give God all the credit and all the praise when anything good comes from any of our works. And so it's even my prayer right now, this morning, it's my prayer every week that even as I preach, I'm not preaching with any kind of skill or knowledge that I have, but that I'm simply letting the word of God shine through in my own speech and letting the Spirit use me to serve you. And so while I'm thankful if you enjoy the sermon or if you think I'm a good preacher, I know that all glory goes to God for any spiritual benefit that you may gain through my words. And if that is true for me, then it is also true for each of you that whether in the fellowship of this church as we encourage one another with the truth from the Bible or whether it's in the world around us as we strive to share the good news of the gospel with others, We must always know that any good that comes from it, any fruit that we bear is evidence not of our own abilities, but of God at work in us. And so the question for us, I think, is practically how can we get to a place where we serve in the strength that God supplies? If we know the principle, if we can see the principle illustrated here in Luke chapter 9, and if we see it in the rest of the New Testament, And how can we ourselves begin to live this out? Well, in a way, I do think that Luke chapter 9 portrays for us exactly how this is supposed to happen. And again, the message is simple trust in Jesus Christ. Do you read something that God's word tells you to do? Then just do it. Don't question it. Don't say, I have to know the end from the beginning. Say, the Lord is my master, and I want to be obedient to him, and I trust that he is good, that he is loving, that he does have my best interest at heart. And so even if it doesn't make sense, I'm going to obey. I'm going to walk forward in faith. But there are three ways in particular that I want you to see that you can take hold of God's provision for you in Christ in such a way that you are able to serve others, not in your own strength, but in the strength that God himself supplies. So the first way that I want you to see how the gospel gives us provision that we can serve others from is I want you to see the love of Christ that is shown to you in the gospel. So here's Romans 5, 7 and 8. 
It says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the love of Christ is shown and that he died for you individually while you were still a sinner. Not because you were righteous, not when you were righteous, not after you got cleaned up, but when you were an enemy of God. Christ came to die for you. 1 John 3.16 echoes this message. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. There can be no greater love than someone willing to give their very life for another. Or 1 John 4 verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is love. Now why is this so important and how does this help us to serve others? Well, beloved, I would contend with you that if you do not know that you yourself are loved, we all feel the need for love and the craving for love. And if we do not know that we have already received it in Christ Jesus, we will not be able to show love for others. It is only as we come to understand these verses, to understand God's enormous love for us in Christ Jesus, that then our own love banks are filled up, as it were, so that we can go and we can pour out love for others from the love that we ourselves have received. You see, we will have no provision, no way to love others if we do not first know God's love for us. And as we know God's love for us, we will feel compelled to go out and to show that love for others. And so first, God's love is a provision that has been freely given to us in Christ Jesus, by which we were able to go and serve others. A second resource that God has given us in the gospel to serve others is he has given us his own spirit. He has given us the Holy Spirit of God. This is Galatians 4, verse 6. It says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. If you trust in Jesus Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit of God living within you. Ephesians 1, verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Beloved, the Holy Spirit is one with the triune God. He is the third person of the Trinity. And if he lives in you now, that means you have resources far and above anything that any mere human could have in order to do the works that God himself desires you to do. Works of love and of power and of self-denial and of grace and of mercy. The Holy Spirit is within us to empower us to perform ministry to others. But again, we will not have a big tank full of the Holy Spirit first and then be able to go out and serve others. The Holy Spirit is given to us in the same way that bread was given to the disciples. He is given to us in our moments of need. As we go about doing works that require the power of the Spirit, God will be there to provide. 
And that's why we must walk forward in faith. And lastly, a great resource that is given to us in the gospel is a new identity that we have in Jesus Christ. And again, this new identity that we have in Christ is able to empower us in love for others. So this is Galatians 4, 4 and 5. It says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption as sons, that is our identity if we trust in Christ Jesus. Or 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So there's another identity that we get in Christ Jesus, a new creation. See, again, so many of us are so often hindered from serving in the way that God wants us to serve because we have some kind of guilt over our past sins. Or because we've been victimized in some way by our family or by someone else near to us or maybe even by strangers. And so we feel that we have somehow been so mistreated left so dirty that we can no longer be of service to God's kingdom. And so in order to remedy this problem, when we come to Christ and when we trust in him, we are given this new identity. We are sons and daughters of God. We are not simply victims of what has happened to us in the past. We are not simply full of sin and shame and unable to draw near to God. No, we are dressed in royal robes of righteousness and able to walk into God's very presence. We are new creations, able to do new works of the new creation, of the new kingdom. And we re- when we remember this identity that we receive through Jesus Christ by faith, in the gospel, then we are able to lay our past life behind us. We are able to lay our sins and weights aside, and we are able to serve wholeheartedly. But again, so often, this confidence in this identity will only come as we go about in service to Jesus. If we simply sit alone in our rooms trying to work up assurance that we are really sons of God, then we may indeed find ourselves struggling to ever gain that assurance. And yet if we are willing, again, to walk in simple obedience, just taking the next step that we believe God wants us to take, then we will quickly come to understand the love that God has for us, the spiritual power that God has poured out. And our identity as sons and as new creations. And so my exhortation to you is simply, if you don't know these things, if you don't know that you can be a son of God by faith in Jesus Christ, then trust in him this morning. If you didn't know that you could receive the spirit of the triune God by simple faith in Christ, then trust in him this morning. And if you don't know the love of God for you, then trust in him this morning and you will come to know all of these wonders and so much more. God's generosity in Christ is limitless. 
And if you have come to know these things, whether in small measure or in great measure, then my exhortation to you is to simply obey. Just walk forward in faith, knowing the goodness and the generosity of our Savior. Knowing that you cannot outgive him, that any service that you provide, at the end you will have 12 baskets left over. You will have an abundance for every need, for every command that God gives you to fulfill. And so God is at work today, and he wants to be even more at work through his disciples today. But God can only be glorified through his disciples as they are willing to trust him and to show up in people's moments of needs, knowing that God can provide. And so I know a word to myself, and I believe a word to you, is to simply not think too small of God. Not to think too small of his grace or of his love, of his generosity. To think that there is any aspect of our lives, whether it be emotional or relational or financial or physical, that he cannot provide for. And as we indeed have faith in God in this way, believe in God in this way, we will not have to simply muster up obedience. It will not be a great work of our own strength to walk in faithfulness to God. Rather, we will be able to say with all of our hearts that we are simply looking to Jesus day by day. We are simply breaking the bread that he has handed to us. And as we are breaking the bread, we are finding that Jesus himself is able to work through us more incredible things than we know that we could ever do in our own strength. And so, beloved, the Christian life is a very difficult life. It is a high calling to do impossible things. And yet, as we go about it, we also get the joy of knowing Jesus Christ at our right hand, giving us everything that we need for life and godliness. Let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, we indeed thank you and praise you for the great provision that you have given us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we praise you for this great work that you did in ancient Palestine of feeding these 5,000. And Lord, we ask that you would do a similar work in our own day through us as your disciples. God, would you help us not to simply think in natural terms of what we ourselves can accomplish, but would you help us to think, God, of how you might be at work through us in order to meet the needs of the world around us? And then would you help us to walk by simple faith and obedience in you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in prayer now as a people. This is a time to offer prayers of confession to God, prayers of petition to God, as we indeed ask him to move in the world around us. And so let me open us just briefly in prayer, and then I welcome you to pray with me. God, we know that none of us are perfect, that all of us have fallen short of what we see taught here in Luke chapter 9. And so, Lord, would you hear now our prayers of confession, and would you give us hearts of faith to ask great and enormous things of you? Would you hear us now, God?